This is the story of my origin, a sort of ordinary, normal, boring kid who wasn't concerned about prom king. Until I turned my tenure as an honorary member of the West Coast Avengers to a dirty South Swamp thing. They sent me on a mission to find the stolen remnant of the central store of wisdom divine. Code of the infinite, I've been to four dimensions in mind. Molded with pixel flick, a mental organism designed only for killing this mic. And the second we step in from backstage, we rap like it's an action-packed splash page. Act like we're trying to cause an avalanche cascade. Cause we'd rather turn back than attack halfway. We're paving pathways like Stan and Jack both. In fact, these rap quotes impact like Black Bolt said it. So roll credits on these Jersey Shore girls. They can break the fourth wall. We break the fourth world. Did I hear you correctly in that it's your bar mitzvah this weekend? You're turning 16, man? I'm turning, I'm, I'm turning 12 this weekend. Oh, dude, good for you. Thank you. Yeah, right? Go for that shit. Good money. Oh, good money. Yeah. Bar mitzvahs. Okay. Um, let's just get into it. Everybody, welcome back to the Rip Brewers Podcast. This is our Christmas episode, which is why we're, of course, talking about bar mitzvahs. Um, I am your host, Matt Gone. With me, as always, is my great co-host... John Elker. How's it going, buddy? It's going pretty well. I am once again Skyping. This time it's not my fault, I swear. Yeah, this time it's the repairman? A repairman that is yet to come, um, and he was supposed to uh, show up about 15 minutes ago, so this should be pretty interesting. <laughs> You're going to leave in the middle of this to go help the repair guy, aren't you? Uh, yes, that's correct. Oh, <laughs> the irony being, I, I actually had to, had to uh, work from home today because I had to meet a repairman who did show up. <laughs> uh, he, he, he was probably the same guy. You probably stole my business. Yeah, you know, he, I mean, he was two minutes late, though, not 15. Uh, <laughs> nope, that sounds like him. <laughs> and uh, we have our next guest on. This is another, I don't really know how to describe you. It's just a funny guy, podcaster. No, you don't podcast, but. Oh, um, not yet. Not yet. I mean, you're podcasting now. Yeah, I'm, um, I guess I'm getting my podcasting cherry popped today. <laughs> so. Oh, lucky me. Okay, uh, everyone, please, <laughs> please welcome to the program, first time guest, Peter Wahlberg. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I am Woo! extremely excited, um, and I'm, I don't know if we're ever going to get the uh, story behind John's name, but if at some point... We'll find out. Right, John? We will find out if you listen to the rest of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> From the spelling of it, I assume that you're probably like a Jedi Knight? Or something similar? That actually is more logical than his actual ancestry. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me just phrase it this way. That's not the answer you're looking for. Oh, oh. God, Never is. leave. No! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as John mentioned, uh, he is not here, which is a bummer because I had a surprise Christmas beer imported all the way from Texas for us to join. Uh, so I'm going to make you go first, John. What are you drinking over there? <laughs> um, it's something uh, that is always festive, regardless of the time of the year. Um, it is a Budweiser Platinum, um, also known <laughs> fondly yeah. as a Buddy Platt. Oh, um, yeah, the philosophy behind this beer is kind of my philosophy with drinking. If you're uh, going to drink shit, get shitty. Um, <laughs> because um, it basically tastes exactly like a Bud, except, you know, of course, it, it gets you to where you need to be a lot sooner. Um, so that's all I have to really say about this. What do you have? Ah, yeah, that was disappointing, John. We <laughs> have, uh, from St. Arnold's Brewery in Houston, Texas, which is actually a brewery I was at earlier this summer. We have their seasonal, uh, St. Arnold's Christmas Ale. Handcrafted, micro-brewed from Houston, Texas. Described as a Bishop of Metz St. Ar- well, that's about St. Arnold. I'll read it anyway. 
As Bishop of Metz, M-E-T-Z, St. Arnold spent his life warning of the dangers of drinking water and extolling the virtues of ale. During his funeral, his pallbearers stopped to slake their thirst, but regretfully there was just one mug of ale to share among them. The miracle came to pass that one mug never ran dry, and all the thirsty mourners in the entire gathering were satisfied. That is the legend of St. Arnold, and this is a Christmas beer. Um, we're assuming he died at like 33 of liver <laughs> failure, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, possibly earlier than that. Yeah, but so I don't like winter beers. This is actually going to be a rough couple of months if we try and go seasonal. I hate, <laughs> I hate winter beers. And uh, this beer was a gift, and I, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, but uh, What don't you like about winter beers? I think... It... it <laughs> I don't know that much about, like, what makes a beer winter. Like, at least with Thanksgiving, I get that you're putting some pumpkin infusion yeah. into it or something. Winter, like, is it made with snowflake water? It, <laughs> it's, there's always, like, it's always, like, the baked good beer season. There's always, like, nutmeg and cinnamon. Gingerbread beer. Gin, yeah, ginger, I don't know, it's just, it, nothing's interesting. Like, in summer beers, you've got a lot of citrus stuff, and you, have, you got your Saison and summer ales, and there's a lot more ingredients to work with. And in fall beers, you have pumpkin and everything that comes with that. But in winter beers, they just, like, ran out of ideas. And it's like, we're just going to spike this with cinnamon and call it a winter ale. I don't know. That's my rant. How come there's, <laughs> no, how come there's no Bud Light Platinum winter beer? Yeah, I think John, they're missing a market on how this. How come, John? Hey, I, I, I searched the store. I scoured the store for the Budweiser Christmas edition, and they didn't have it. I, I was pretty upset. You disappoint me. Um, all right, well, are we all ready to do our ceremonial opening of the beers? Alright, into, into the mics, right here, Peter. Alright. Alright, three, two, one. Alright, wait, there's something in the inside of the box. Sorry, try again. This what? one says, wait no longer. Because <laughs> it's like longer, oh. but it says longer. Hey, John, what about you? Um, mine has uh, absolutely nothing underneath yeah. it. I feel chipped. Yeah. <laughs> um, Budweiser, All right. the cheers. cheers, thanks for being on. John, cheers, cheers to you. Hmm. Kind of sweet. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. Is it hoppy? The only thing I know to say about beer is that it's hoppy. I, is I, it hoppy? I don't think it's... It's not that hoppy. Oh, all right. Well, shit. <laughs> and with wine, you say it's got an oaky aftertaste. Yeah. Those are my go-to moves. Wine always pairs with some shitty cheese, I'm sure. Yeah. Hey, John, tell us about your platinum. <laughs> um. So, the, the best way that I could describe this platinum is an infusion of... Um, has anyone ever had a beer before? Um, it's basically just a <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> you disappoint me. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna have a long talk about this. Rainwater, <laughs> rainwater crossed with sadness. That's the taste. And, uh, so the listeners, Peter's pun was not his own, although we're gonna get money of those, I'm sure, but uh, the inside, <laughs> the inside of the bottle cap read, uh, Wait, 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 no lager. Mm -hmm. um, mine said, sorry, try again, which is a lot more depressing, and I don't understand why. What, did um, they just, like, not even want to try for a pun for you? That that sucks. Maybe if you keep drinking, yeah, <laughs> get on out the other side. And also, I don't know what the ABV of this is, and that's risky, because there, there's a behind-the-scenes story about episode two, when we drank Lagunitas. Um, <laughs> two of you drank Lagunitas anyway. Yeah, two of us drank Lagunitas. Well, no, Grant was drinking a different Lagunitas. Oh, okay. But that, uh, that little something ale was 7.5 ABV. And I drank two of those during. And I was starting to feel it a little bit at the end of the episode. 
and I forgot to eat dinner that day. Uh, and then later that night, I decided, probably because the beer was in my system, that that seemed like a good time to start editing the episode, which took some time. So I also drank the other two leftover beers, <laughs> because I wanted my fridge to not be too full, you know, for the next beer we were going to drink. And I got very ripped on those beers. That was, came out of nowhere. Um, was not the greatest of mornings, as you can expect. So I'm going to look up on Untapped what the ABV of this is. <laughs> and what was your untapped uh, name, if people want to friend you, it's by the way? It's Matt Gone 4, I think. Um, I should double-check that. But first off, Christmas Ale is an old-style ale. It has 7% 7 ABV. So, yeah, I need to watch myself. <laughs> um, so only one and a half beers after the podcast. Yeah, only one and a half after the podcast. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the, the brewery in Texas was really cool. They... Um, it's like five dollars to get in, I think, and the the brew tour was really interesting. Everyone there is really nice. But the cool thing about it, uh, different from like all the DC breweries I visited, is that you walk in and the brewery section is like kind of off to the side in this big other room. But the main area you're in is like a giant like hall, and there's just uh, picnic tables everywhere, and there's lots of kids there too. There's lots of like children playing. Like every, it, it felt like. Um, Everyone, it was like a rec center almost, like a rec center slash brewery. And at the very end of the hall was their bar area, and their root beer, was, which was delicious, was also free. Um, it was a really cool one. So if you're ever in Texas, you should definitely check out St. Arnold's Brewery. Everyone there was really nice. We randomly bumped into the owner. Um, uh, yeah, it was a good time. So I like that the kids were just running around. Like there were children running around, yeah. St. Arnold's Brewery, cheaper than a babysitter. <laughs> you can get drunk, and someone will know where your kids are. Uh, all right, and um, yeah, well, so guys, let's get into the movie. I don't know how long it's been, but no one cares about the beer that they can't taste. Um, which I guess actually, do you like it? So I far? do. Yeah, I do. I'm I'm not notorious for my good taste in liquor, <laughs> since my most common bar order is either a Coors Light or a Seven and Seven. Oof. Yeah, uh, I'm basically sixty-eight. This is a. Uh... It, it kind of has the same problems most Christmas beers have for me, but at the same time, I can drink this. I like it. It's not my favorite of St. Arnold's stuff, but, you know, I mean... There's something fruity about it. Where do you think some, that comes from? I don't know. There's... I don't know what that fruity flavor is. It's a little bit sweet. Berries, children's sweet. laughter. And, and Peter and I drank water before this, so our palates are clean. No. <laughs> Drank water. I ate some sherbet just to be sure. Just, uh, <laughs> professional beer <laughs> tasters. Some, some coffee. Can we have a palate cleanser for a palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the movie. Uh, we watched *Lethal Weapon*, which was directed by Richard Donner, who did *Superman: The Omen* uh, and a bunch of other movies. I think they did all the *Lethal Weapons*. And it came out in 1987, right? Let me double check that. I believe so. Um, yeah, 1987 is right. 1987. Uh, yeah, and alright, well, Peter, as you know, the question we always ask is, when did you first see Lethal Weapon? But that's a disappointing answer from you, isn't it? It is sadly a disappointing answer. So I remember seeing bits and pieces of it, like I feel like in between Die Hard. But my first time seeing the movie was like three days ago when I bought it on Amazon Prime. That's legit. I just I just got my Amazon Prime. I feel like a very old I feel like a very like professional mature person now. Yeah. I have an Amazon Prime account, I have a Netflix, like wow. a, a savings, um, all that. I have a savings account. <laughs> yeah, I have a savings <laughs> account now. 
There's like six and a half dollars in it. I just wow. Teetered. Next stop four hundred one k. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? <laughs> okay? That money's staying in my mattress where it belongs, <laughs> where it's gonna do real good. Oh boy. Okay, so you just saw it. Uh, yeah. but you've seen Die Hard before. Oh yeah. Obviously. Oh yeah. And I'm obviously familiar with the work of noted humanitarian Mel Gibson and with Danny Glover. So um, it was interesting. I feel like the perspective's a little bit different coming at this movie without the sort of childhood memory of like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, this is something I grew up with that I probably have with like Die Hard or even some of yeah. the others that you've done. So it was, it was kind of weird. I had to try not to look at it with two like wizened, embittered eyes. No, we wanted that. We wanted the bitterness. Yeah. <laughs> um, John, what about you? Have you seen this before? Uh, yes, I have, and I, I need to say before I get on a rant as to uh, my experience with this movie firsthand, Matt, get out of my brain, because this is a, I have a really funny story about this, in oh, fact. No. Um, All right. This is, uh, this is, I can say, pretty safely, because I saw it at a, such a young age, I want to see like three, four years old, something like that. This is my first movie that I've seen with Nip. <laughs> Just like full on, full on shot. So much Nip. Um, yeah, and, and the reason why I got to see it was because um, I was watching with my dad, who knew literally nothing about the movie, um, and my mom was just like off in the corner knitting or doing whatever moms do, I suppose, um, and, and she happened to catch sight of the first scene of this yeah. movie, in which there's a full frontal shot of just <laughs> Nip, um, and I remember, like, you know, gazing upon the nip for the first time and just like turning to my dad and just being like, why is she not wearing a shirt? Um, <laughs> and at that point, my mom, who I've never seen a human being dive this far in my entire life, just dived across the room from my eyes. And so, so my very first experience was just literally watching maybe like the first five ish minutes of the film mm -hmm. um and before i actually went back to it late on a later date when i was allowed to see it in movies but um yeah so it uh it, it was an interesting experience for me <laughs> this is a, this is a growing movie for you huh oh absolutely uh was it like cartman's mom did she go like what, what? Uh, basically yeah <laughs> <clears throat> before i get into my first time seeing this which is not interesting so i'm going to preface it with an interesting story um, our first movie on this podcast was The Terminator, and I got some information recently that something I said in that podcast was false. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that information was, I thought my first time seeing The Terminator was when I was maybe 12 or 13 after having seen Terminator 3. Found out from my brother that I had seen the first Terminator when I was a toddler. I was, I guess, watching it with my dad and older brother, um... My brother is probably, let me think, well, if I was a toddler, he would have to be like 15, 16, maybe 20, something like that. I don't know. But apparently my brother, uh, there, my dad and me and my brother are watching it, and my dad made my brother turn it off during a scene when Arnold is cutting out his eye. Oh, that's one of the like most excruciating because moments of all of the rubber. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was... Uh, that was my first time seeing that movie, so I apologize to you, John, and the listeners for that. You dirty liar. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I didn't know. I, I, I can't remember if I can ever trust you again. <laughs> I, I, I do think I have been a lifelong Terminator fan, though, by those standards. So, um, And then, yeah, but for me, this movie, uh, just seeing it the first time, it was, again, I saw it with my dad when we were kids. I remember there was, like, the DVD box set back when those were a thing, you know? And, um, yeah, saw that, 
Didn't really think much of it then. My opinion has definitely changed, and we can get into why in a second. Let's dive into the movie. Does anybody want to go first? Uh, you know, it was funny. <laughs> it was it was funny when you mentioned the nip mm. in this movie. The first notes on my page are literally, I just have the word gratuitous, and then in parentheses, <laughs> so period, much period, nipples and ass. Can I, can I, can I add to that? My second line of notes is uh, underlined 70s boob. Yeah, it's <laughs> definite. Well, because there's her, there's her nip first, and then, um, and then immediately smash cut to uh, Danny Glover <laughs> in the bathtub with his entire family there watching yeah. him. Be Which naked. is that a thing? Do families do that? Just like sneak up on people while they're naked in the bathtub? Yeah, no. and and I thought you know, in all those scenes and movies, there's always lots of bubbles. You know, there's lots of bubbles in the bathtub covering there was up your not private any- parts. There was, like, two bubbles. I was looking. Yeah, there was Danny Glover dong all <laughs> over Roger Murtaugh's family. Mm. It, there was... Well, well, I'm actually very glad that you're bringing that up, because um, it makes me question the intent of this director, because there are... There is so much of Danny Glover and Mel Gibson that you see in this film. It's a little... Yeah. It's a little sickening. Because the first scene, the very first scene that you see of Mel Gibson, I'm pretty sure you get a great ass shot of him, right? You do. You do. Sublime ass shot. After you get <laughs> Mel Gibson nip. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that's right. After you get Danny Glover nip. <laughs> after you get Danny Glover. He wanted to establish the nipple early. It was equal opportunity nipple, you know? <laughs> there was. There was a lot of nipple. Uh, Some, something else that I noticed about Mel Gibson, just as he's waking up, like, he's asleep, passed out, with a lit cigarette in his mouth. That's talent right there. How, when did he light the cigarette? How did it get there? In what circumstances did his awful trailer not burn down? <laughs> There's just a lot that's left. I, I left the first six minutes of this movie. I had to watch it seven or eight times. I got nipple out of it and then just a whole lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, um... God, this well, part of me, part of me actually wonders if like the director didn't know how to start this film because I would argue that the first thirty minutes of this film are literally just, "Hey, look, Danny Glover's old. Hey, look, Mel Gibson is suicidal." In fact, so much so that I made a count of the amount of times that characters reference those two facts to each other. Um, let <laughs> really? me just give you the total count for both. Oh boy, um, yeah, I love you for uh, this, by the way. <laughs> yes. So in the first hour of the film. The amount of times that people flat out to his face tell Mel Gibson's character that he's suicidal. 22 times. 22 times! Um, and uh, on the uh, flip side of that, Danny Glover being old is just 11. Um, but that being said, it goes back to my um, bigger point of just, I feel like the director didn't really know what to do at the beginning of this film. Um, because there's just so much gratuity. And, 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 and the story takes a really long time to actually develop. Yeah, the I, I want to add to both your points because, um, to, yeah, you're right, John. I felt like the first 20 minutes of this movie were the weakest, I, I like, and definitely the parts that aged the worst. It, once it got rolling, it held up better than I remembered and actually wanted to remember it. Um, but also, the whole plot is really a second string to it being about Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Uh, and not in a good way. It's not a really great plot in general. Yeah, it felt a little bit like you had to have a plot. Yeah. So they were like, okay, well, we've got a story that ties all this together and that superficially justifies everything that's happening. But mm-hmm. 
Otherwise, let's just let Danny Glover and and Mel Gibson go at things. And it was weird. I agree what you said about yeah. the beginning of the movie because I think that the pacing of the movie is actually one of its strong points. As you get later on, yeah. As you get towards the end, like the action oh. scenes are like interspersed well, and it's moving along, and like it seems very tight. Yeah. Yes. Oh, towards the end, like the final forty five minutes of the film are incredible. Yeah. Um. But, alright, so, I'm almost looking at my notes here. There's, there are three and a half scenes where there is rain in L.A. in this movie. Mm. And from my understanding, that that is, like, more rain than the current superstorm hitting California will drop right now. All three days of that year. Yeah, and I say in a half because the last scene, they tip over the fire hydrant and so there's lots of water in the air and it feels like a rain scene. Yeah. There's not that much rain in L.A. No, not at all. Well, they needed the rain with the fire hydrant to cover up the, like, 80s-style uh, stunt doubles. So, oh like, you, you, God, yes. you, you, get, you get that it's, like, supposed to be these people, but it's, like, this guy is... I, I think the guy playing Danny Glover might be white. <laughs> like, it just did not look like them. You guys, when, <laughs> when will Lethal Weapon 5 come out? We, we all know that reference, right? <laughs> no? John, does anyone watch Always Sunny? Oh, boy. This oh. is awkward. Go, 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 go. Oh, you you don't have to be in the same room with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got really dark over here. Oh, all right. Just glared at me. I'm going to write down Lethal Weapon 5. I'll bring that up later, because it's not <laughs> what you think it is. Um, all right, well, that kind of killed a lot of momentum. Thanks, guys. Yeah, going back to a point that was mentioned earlier, though, I do want to uh, point out the facts um, of the 80s and the fact that this movie was made in the 80s. Yes. Because in my opinion, this movie is eternally stuck in the 80s. Um, to the point where um, the, the soundtrack is basically just, you know, that heavy reverb, uh, electric oh, guitar, and the yeah. sexy saxophone. That's yeah. it. It's Cross with Kenny J. Over and over, <laughs> and over again. Um, the car's, like, decidedly 80s. Um, Mel Gibson is rocking like the 80s moment. I feel like if aliens were to come down um, to like 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 10,000 years from now, if they were to come to Earth and find our time capsules that have um, this film in it, they would immediately know, oh yeah, th this is from the 80s. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, they, they would. And then immediately obliterate <laughs> for it. Yeah, yeah, actually, I have to... Uh, so I have some other things clouding my judgment from the second time watching this movie. Uh, two factors. The first was... Um, my girlfriend and I have been in a bit of a heated debate over if Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So we... Interesting. Yeah, when did we watch it? We watched it Sunday, I think. Uh, we're recording this Thursday night. So within the past week, I have seen Die Hard, which there's a lot of similarities to. Uh, and then also, I watched the movie with her, and... It was a struggle for like the first five minutes because she was like saying, why is she naked? She wouldn't be dressed like that. Well, I was like, why is Danny Glover naked? And then, <laughs> and then like, Mel Gibson, he was hot. And I was like, ah. So On the I next have... week of Rebrewers, Matt Gone reveals that he and his girlfriend broke up. Yeah. <laughs> Over Mel Gibson's perfect, perfect ass. Next time on Rest <laughs> <and> Development. <laughs> that is... I mean, uh, that's, it's an ass so good that reference is made in other movies to Mel Gibson's ass yeah. work in films. Remember yeah. Notting Hill? We got it. Any of you ever watched that? Uh, am, I, am I outing myself a little here? You're outing yourself a little. <laughs> uh, uh. Speaking of which, um, 
I had an observation. I studied philosophy in college, so I think in terms of questions rather than answers. Go for it. And the question I had was this. Is this even gayer than Top Gun? The the question uh, has to at yeah, least be Top Gun, Top Gun is pretty gay. I, I gotta say, Top Gun is pretty gay. It, it is, but, but there but are moments. But there's, there's, there's moments in this one. It, it gets... And I, I don't... Notable amongst them, their very first meeting, like yeah. Mel Gibson decks him. Yeah. And then he's like, and then it's like, this is your new partner. By the way, that's. They're looking into each other's eyes, and Mel Gibson kind of smiles, and then the music does that jazz sax. Yes. Yeah, the sexy sax. I'll give you this Mel Gibson, through numerous occasions in the film, gives the fuck me eyes. Like, like to random. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Villains, other cops. Is that a new term for the Rebrewers podcast, John? <laughs> I'm sorry, say what? Is that a new term for the Rebrewer's Library? You know, the, the fuck me eyes? Yeah, so we have <laughs> 70s boob and the fuck me eyes. <laughs> and uh, what was the one uh, What was the one from Alien? The um, uh, what were we something about? about pussy. Or no, was, that, no was, that was from Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. John knows what it was. Oh, Jesus. Uh, a skunk, skunk pussy. Skunk or, pussy. Yeah. <laughs> skunk uh, pussy. Mel Gibson was on the lookout for some skunk pussy. He gives his dog <laughs> the eyes at one point. His rifle... There's, there's, there's a reason we have an explicit rating on iTunes Store, by That's the way. probably Which is best. now, by the way, for the listener, we have finally gotten a proper iTunes link. So it no longer reads the Rebrewers Podcast dash Matthew Gone. It reads the Rebrewers Podcast, and then in the authors, Matt and John. So my ego is no longer being stroked every time you click it. So uh, that was a tangent, though. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's some tension. There's some tension so, between... So, so where were we? Oh, right. Mel Gibson's ass. Uh, yeah, well, basically. Well, and, I mean, and just gay gay tension. I would agree. There was a little bit of it there. But I felt like it had no direction. Like, there was definitely some just ever so slight homoerotic undertones. Yeah. But nothing... It just didn't go anywhere. It had no reason to be. It just was. I mean, Top Gun probably wins out simply because of all of the volleyball. The volleyball, yeah. It wasn't a volleyball scene in this. Locker rooms. Yeah, unfortunately... The only time, they weren't ever naked around each other, just their pets and family. Oh, man. <laughs> um, um, well, if I could just go off of that for a little bit, I, I do feel that a, a, a lot of um, <laughs> the the gay undertones basically just came from the first 30 to 40-ish minutes of the film. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really get it throughout the rest of the film. Um, but it, it speaks to my point of, like, it almost makes me wonder if, they decided, oh shit, we need another story to supplant this other story about the, um, what are they called? The Shadow Gang? Shadow or... Company? The Shadow Company. Yeah, there that is. is another thing entirely. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I have written down in my notes, John, you know how sometimes we incorrectly refer to a character for the entirety of the podcast? Yes. Uh, from I am declaring it right now. From here on, the bad guy in this movie is known as General Turtleneck. <laughs> Such strong turtleneck game. Such yeah. strong turtleneck game. You would make Sterling Archer, I don't know, proud or just weather and, and just frustration. Oh, uh, I got a lot of um, Archer themes throughout this, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah. definitely a few. Uh, yeah. Uh, but just to go with off of what I was saying, though, um, right. so basically, like, I almost felt like there was this storyline between the two characters that was almost shoehorned in at the last second, which is that... Um, Murdoch, um, or Murdoch, rather, Murtaugh. um, Murtaugh. Lover's character basically mentions, yo, listen, we don't kill around these parts. As policemen, we don't shoot to kill people. I'll only shoot in the leg. He even tells the six-year-old brat, which, by the way, we have to get into yes, this. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. the children. Um, 
Uh, at one point, uh, yes. For a lot of reasons. There's so many like topical reasons. So many, <laughs> there's like, a lot of topical <laughs> shit in this movie. We yeah, watched it in December 2014. It'll become apparent why I said that later. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But so essentially, he's trying to explain uh, to uh, Riggs, who's Mel Gibson, um, that, hey, listen, we don't shoot to kill. Don't be an asshole. We don't shoot to kill. Um, and this is pretty much established only in the first 30 to 45 minutes of the film. And then they finally get back around to it towards the end where, am I allowed to reveal the spoiler? This yes. Earlier in the podcast? Yes. You so can spoil whatever you want. Okay. Okay. At the very end, Gary Busey dies through a gunshot through both Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Yeah. So, so they so, both shot him at the same time while standing with some right next yeah, to each other. Mel Gibson's shirtless <laughs> covered in a blanket. <laughs> you know, they're like, they're like sharing the, the same raincoat. In the rain, and they both shoot him like standing within inches of each other. Adorable, adorable. <laughs> oh boy, so that's this why, movie is pretty good. That's why, yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so 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 again, it always makes me wonder if like that plot was shoehorned around this like really awesome like uh, you know heroin plot that was going on in the background because. I don't know. It, it wasn't really postulated upon until the, f- the first 30 minutes and the final, like, three minutes. <laughs> the, the, heroin, the heroin plot, like, did nothing for me. I don't know about you guys. No, it, it seemed very, like, it, it, it just, it seemed so, it seemed so constructed and so kind of hackneyed, almost like, like somebody had seen Apocalypse Now and was like, I can do something kind of like this yeah. and make them like, what if, what if Kurtz was functional and eventually <laughs> was an entrepreneur yeah. and like expanded his business. That's, you, mean, you mean General Turtleneck. General Turtleneck. Yeah. <laughs> like his name, I had to write it down specifically. I actually, um, I, I only saw him as General Turtleneck, but what was his name? I'm forgetting. Uh, McAllister. Peter McAllister. Uh, no, we're calling him Turtleneck. Yeah, no, his name's General Turtleneck. General Turtleneck. General Turtleneck. And that was, I think that part of why the plot about the, um, part of why the plot about the Shadow Company seemed so hackneyed was precisely because the villains felt underdeveloped to me. Oh, they were. They, yeah. Like, I just, like, the general I knew nothing about except at one point he was here and then a hand grenade blew him up in a car. Danny Glover's kids have more character development than the bad guys in this movie. Oh, yeah, and are much more interesting, and as, are much a, more interesting. as a result of it. Yeah, um, the only the only characterization we get for the bad guys is, hey, we love heroin. <laughs> That's oh, okay. It. Can I, um... <clears throat> so this movie was written by Shane Black, who... Mm-hmm. It, was, it was written by Shane Black, directed by Richard Donner, Shane Black also directed Iron Man 3, and <clears throat> I caught a scene in there which I think he repeated in Iron Man 3, but it's in the middle of the movie when we when Murtaugh, Danny Glover, finally confronts, um, you know, the second tier bad guy about the heroin operation, and they're talking about it, and the bad guy reveals the plot, why his, his daughter had been killed, and he's revealing to the cops probably why it happened, because of the heroin addiction, or the heroin operation, and then... They're in a really nice house on, like, a cliffside in, in, like, northern L.A., and then a helicopter, like, comes up out of nowhere, shoots the general, and there's, like, a scene, and then Mel Gibson's, like, running after it, the handgun, trying to shoot the helicopter. Yeah, that hilariously. a lot like the scene in Iron Man 3. So, a similar situation, there's, you know, big stuff getting revealed, and then it's in a mansion on a cliff overlooking L.A., and then a helicopter attacks and blows up the entire thing and gets away, thinking it killed the heroes, but it didn't. 
Just wanted to point that out. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, I think that that actually... So apparently Shane Black was 26 when he wrote this movie. Really? So he was really young, and it feels like the kind of script that a really young writer might write. Like, you see yeah. everything he's doing in it, um, but it there's just... It feels a little bit like he, he wrote the first draft, he pulled an all-nighter because he had to turn it in the next morning for class. <laughs> like I, I, I completely agree with that. Like, not only is the plot, like, really simple and really uh, juvenile, even, um, but, like, even the way that people talk in the dialogue is there is no subtlety in this script. Like, yeah. again, people will just flat-out tell Mel Gibson's character, hey, I've heard you're suicidal. What's up with that, dog? He's like, after like, psychopension. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's everybody <laughs> speaks their mind throughout this film, and, and to to this film's credit, though, regardless of all of its uh, on the poor side writing, um, this has developed a lot of amazing one-liners, yeah, like one oh, yeah. like, liners that that if you ask me, like have li survived throughout this day. Oh yeah, yeah. the, the one-liners caught me off guard. I really came into this movie. Definitely expecting, like, all right, this is going to have aged pretty poorly. But then there was a lot of moments where I caught myself laughing. I was like, well, okay, damn it. I didn't expect that. I had had no idea that that was where I'm too old for this shit came from. Yes. Like, really? That snuck up on me. Not oh having seen this movie. Because obviously, that is a line. Mm. Being in my late 20s now, I'm kind of over the hill. I'm in my sunset years. And <laughs> Already. So, He's going back to Florida. Yeah, That's I'm basically, I've got a retirement home. I've got a condo. And, uh, is that the retirement age for people in Florida? Twenty? <laughs> uh, well, if I mean, if you make it through the meth trade in good order, oh. like uh, uh, I'm just saying. I know. Um, I'm just saying. Um, yeah. So uh, I think that I actually think yeah, the writing of the the writing was actually really good. It, the construction of the script and the uh, the story editing, I guess, was a little bit what was lacking. Like, yeah, it, it could was, have used a story editor. It was too much on Riggs and Murtaugh, too much on Murtaugh's family life, not enough of the villains. Mm -hmm. And also, it, it really operates, as a lot of buddy cop movies fall into this trap where halfway through the movie, it feels like there are no other cops in the entire film. There is no more police chief. It's just like the two of them deep behind enemy lines. Yeah. Um, real quick... So, Shane Black, who wrote this movie, <clears throat> this is trivia from IMDb on Predator, but I knew this going in, but he was in Predator playing one of the commandos, but he was, he was at that time, while he was in Predator acting on that, was writing the script for A Lethal Weapon, uh, and he was only in Predator because John McTiernan, who directed that movie, wanted him nearby so he could review the script. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, I'm making... There could be some time differential there. I could be a little bit wrong, but he was in Predator, and I knew that he was working on Lethal Weapon while he was making Predator, which was... They made movies fast back then. Yeah. They made Die Hard 1 in 89 and Die Hard 2 in 90. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, well, three of the four Lethal Weapon movies came in, like, what, the first three, four years yeah. after the series started? And then, yeah, it was pretty... I'll double-check um, the research that the Rebrewers podcast is known for. <laughs> uh, Lethal Weapon 1, 87, 2, 89, 3, 92, and then 4 was 6 years later in 98. And then 5, to be determined. I will talk about that later. There's, <laughs> there's someone listening right now who knows what I'm talking about. and just, like, <laughs> screaming at their phone or however they listen to it. Uh, so, Why don't they have a forum? <laughs> <laughs> something that, speaking, we've talked a lot about the cop angle here. One of the questions I had, is Martin Riggs the worst cop in the history of all cops? 
<laughs> what business does this man... And I actually made a list of his, like... Uh, I basically made his rap sheet. And I want to go through this. Things that some people might consider disqualifying for a cop. Uh, number one, he was an assassin. And as a result, probably a war criminal during the Vietnam War. Yes. So, obviously, comes back, joins the LAPD. <laughs> shoots four suspects and nearly kills another unarmed man in a drug bust. Later that day, is transferred to homicide from narcotics, and then kills another suspect the next day during a warrantless search of a house. It's, it's almost like this was written by a 26-year-old. <laughs> almost. <laughs> then he hurled, Wait, oh, there's more. Then he hurls a guy off a building. Yeah. Tries to commit suicide in the line of duty. Yeah. All that happens about that, by the way, is Danny Glover takes his hilarious 80s cell phone oh. to the side of the road. <laughs> and, <laughs> Sorry, real quick. According, yeah. to, according to IMDb, that cell phone on the side of the road was the first ever movie cell phone. No way. Which I feel like I, can't be right, because that almost looks like a transistor radio. I mean, it had all the familiar symptoms of it's an 80s cell phone. Of, like, it's the size of an Xbox, you know? Mm -hmm. um, okay, but continue. Sorry. Yeah, so he tries to commit suicide in the line of duty. Illegally obtains a high-powered rifle and shoots several suspects without reporting to his commanding officer. Yep. Starts a gunfight in a crowded nightclub. And then exchanges fire with people, automatic weapons fire in the middle yes. of traffic, oh, twice. God. Twice on a highway. That was pissing you off at the end there. That All, all the gunfights in the public were like, no cop would do this. Oh yeah, and then at the very end, insists on having a fist fight with a Fuck man, yes. with a suspect who has just killed two police officers in cold blood. And by the way, what does the LAPD do about this? Uh, watch commanders on the way. But until then, Sergeant Murtaugh's in command. In and he's like, no, no, it's okay. He's yeah. got this. He's going to punch him for a while. All that to the listener is, if you haven't seen the movie, it is actually pretty much verbatim what was said in the movie. They said that Murtaugh is in command, and Murtaugh's like, well, he'll take care of it. I take full responsibility. Let him duke it out. It was so stupid. And there's mud. Ugh. It was, well, it got back to our complaint about Top Gun. It was pretty, uh, <laughs> two guys shirtless fighting in the mud at night, you know? Which I enjoyed immensely. <laughs> I think it was a bold stylistic choice for the 80s, for 80s America. Oh. But, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood has always been progressive in that way. So that was something, that was something that, it, in a way, I love the buddy cop aspect. And this is so, this was so instrumental to what the buddy cop film is now. Yeah. But in so much of the plot, the fact that they were cops seemed to stand in the way. Like, it seemed to just constantly come back at me and it was like, you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You is shouldn't that, do that. Oh, completely. And, and I'll go off of that a little more in that, um, uh, you know, uh, Murdaugh's um, actual uh, rap sheet is not that much better. Um, because I'm really glad that you're our guest, by the way, because I made a rap sheet for him. And all the yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, you guys. Yes, um, I'm so, in the right here place. Here we go. Yeah. So, um, so I really hope this isn't how the LAPD actually is, by the way, because at one point, I, I want to say he's the captain um, of the LAPD, basically um, says to Glover in an aside once he finds out that this girl is murdered, hey, you can kill someone, you're a cop. Yeah, um, that <laughs> so was special. That. So there's that, because, um, you know, that's the law. Um, number two, um, Glover at one point doesn't know. He's confused by the fact that um, Riggs is, explains to him when, before the jumper uh, is going off to do the jumping and whatnot, 
Um, he doesn't know what Roger means after he says, oh, I, hey, you got it? And he, like, double takes. He's like, what the hell did you just say? Roger, what is that? John, that was that was one of the first moments where I, like, laughed out loud unintentionally. <laughs> That's what I was talking about before. I was like, I don't want to like this movie. Hey, that made me laugh. Continue. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, and then the, the, the kicker, which hopefully will catapult us into a huge discussion, is that he is a policeman that is trying to get a police sketch for a crime from a six-year-old. <laughs> and you've catapulted pretty well, buddy. Yeah. There's you, a lot to talk about in that scene. Do you think a defense attorney would have difficulty uh, throwing that, getting that expunged? Uh, a six-year-old without the six-year-old's parents. Yeah, oh, God. There was so much, like, you're right. There was a lot of stupid police action going on on both sides of this movie. Um, do you think he asked a cop when he was writing this? Uh, like, and it's possible that it, he either did or did not. It's possible that this is how cops in the 80s okay. did their work. So, all right. So we need to put a plug in the in the kid conversation. Obviously, a lot to talk about there. But here's my, here's a question. This will be our first question on Define the Podcast as a whole. Um, so we've basically outlined how all these cops have done things we know in real life cops would never do. This is the opposite of the wire. You know, this is <laughs> yeah. the most unrealistic depiction of police that you can get away with. Um, is that something that maybe audiences just didn't really think about or know about or, or knew about and didn't care about in the 80s and 90s more versus now where it's like, we live in a culture where it's like, that wouldn't happen, you know? I mean, there's so many scenes where we, all the three of us clearly are like, there's no way in hell this would happen. And I'm not sure if it's because sm we're smart, if it's we're just more well-educated, or if Mythbusters exists, or we've gone <laughs> through Eric Garner and Michael Brown and all that insanity. Like, do you think that it was just easier in the 80s to get away with just myths of police and movies, you know? Huh, that's a good question. Right. Uh, and I will start by saying that um, if there is a Mythbusters Lethal Weapon episode, we need to get that shit right now and watch. Um, Writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I, I. Well, do you want to take this first guess? Because I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> um, sorry, guys. Uh, so it, it was an odd one. I think that like so much of this movie, well, so much of the characters are products of sort of post-Vietnam cynicism. Yeah. I think that a big part of this is that both of the main characters were vets, and so, but they, they kind of took their experiences in radically different ways, whereas Mel Gibson was this assassin who can shoot smiley faces into people with a pistol. That was a good scene, by the that, way. That was awesome. That was actually one of the better scenes. Have a nice day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then, like, he, then so he was clearly scarred by that experience. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas I think that Danny Glover's character, Murtaugh, like, he kind of came out with this, like, I want to have a normal life and have a family. Sort and, of lied like, to himself. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And it's, it's hard for me. I'd be interested to hear what the two of you think. Like, which of the two characters is actually more authentic in that respect? Like, uh, oh. Mur Murtaugh's kind of respect for law and order from his experiences that he eventually abandons and or mel gibson's like shoot first ask questions later because that's all i've ever been good at that's all i know how to do um like cynicism that eventually ends up being what's needed to save the day god damn it you got deep on us uh, <laughs> i um, went there oh fuck. And I, I am i allowed to say neither 
Um, I think sure. the thing that I think the thing that really works um, with this pairing and kind of created the mold of buddy cop movies in the future is that dynamic. You know, the kind of off their rocker, like doesn't go by the rules um, cop. Um, supplanted by the guy that tries to go by uh, morals and ethics and, and and whatnot. And this movie really did a good job of shaping that mold. And I can see where you're coming from by saying that, like, oh, this is kind of um, the aftermath in, of how people reacted to, like, Vietnam and whatnot. Um, but I would go off of that and say that, oh, yes, and this also helps in determining what this type of movie is trying to strive for and what that genre goes for. So... Interesting. So, like, kind of in the relationship between the two of them, I guess, they're sort of whole in their understanding of law and order. Like, the yeah. two of them each needed each other. They complete each other. They complete each other. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I just, like, that was something that really stuck out in a what in, I don't know if it ages this movie or if it just makes this movie a product of its time and place. Um, I must have missed, though, that Murtaugh Danny Glover was a Vietnam vet. I don't know if I missed that one. I thought he was, yeah, because he was in the same unit as um, the guy who gets shot with the sniper rifle, right. whose name I no longer remember. Mm. Um, bit character number three <laughs> who advances the plot. <clears throat> yeah, well, all right, we'll put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it, see if we change our opinion at the end of the episode. But um, So let's go back to the field interrogation of the four six-year-olds. <laughs> Uh, Can I start off this conversation? Yes, please do. <laughs> fuck those six-year-olds. <laughs> oh, seriously, fuck them. I, that I, I one kid should page. never be anybody's wingman ever. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I have a full page of rage towards these children and all the things that they've done wrong. In this <laughs> oh my, uh, um, somebody else take it off first. While I... All right, I'm, I'm going to go for the... Uh, I'm going to go nuclear here. Uh, when I find it... Okay. Yeah, um, so if the listener who has not watched this is curious, halfway through the movie, they have a new lead, and Riggs and Murtaugh go to some part of, like, semi-ghetto L.A., and they're investigating this house, and there's these four six-year-old kids, I think all of them are black, and, Mm -hmm. um, they start asking questions to these little kids, and it's a pretty funny scene, but... All right, I'm just going to go for it. One of the kids, they, they're asking the police, they're like asking them, like, are you guys policemen? It's like, oh, yeah, we're policemen. And one of the kids says, quote, mama said policemen shoot black people, end quote. And and both my girlfriend and I, we just had to kind of groan audibly. <laughs> yeah, I cringed. I cringed. And obviously the uh, Michael Brown and, and all that stuff going on is still a very fresh national wound. And it, that was actually kind of interesting because this movie is made in 87 and that sentiment was there then. We just randomly watched it and... Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I, I wondered a little bit, having not seen this movie before all of that happened, like, that seemed to run through everything that I saw throughout the movie. That kind of, like... A latent distrust for them, for the way they were doing what they were doing, that kind of came out full force. Yeah. When that kid made that statement, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm. This is hard. This <laughs> yeah. is hard to see." Yeah. And then, and then, oh God, you. I'm sure the scenes on YouTube. If you haven't, you should look it up. But one of the kids, Alfred, knows more than the other three, and the other three are telling him to not talk to the police. 
and they're deflecting the questions being directed at him, but in the same at the same time, through their process of deflection, they are giving away the answers Riggs and Murtaugh are looking for. It's really pretty hilarious. But John, you had a rant. Sure, um, and, and I'm about to go on it. And and by no means do I want to underscore uh, to underscore the. Uh, the, the the tones that are brought out through the, the term of mama says policemen shoot black people. Yeah. I don't want to go there um, at all. I just want to go off of um, you had the, point the of actions that. that these kids have gone through and put these cops through. So um, to give more context to the scene, um, they are about to bust uh, this one girl who they're assuming is a suspect at one point, Dixie, um, a person who they assume have, has poisoned this one girl before she, she you know, committed suicide by, by jumping off a ledge. Um, and their reaction once they see the cops um, is to uh, scream at them um, from across the, the hall while they're trying to walk towards this woman's house. Hey, are you going to bust Dixie? Hey, you're about to dust, b bust Dixie right now, aren't you? Yeah, uh, why don't you go ahead and bust Dixie? As if, like, hey, why don't you announce what we want to do more to her? Yeah, <laughs> why don't you try to give her that head start? Why don't you so narrate that's, the movie? That's the thing that's, that, that screwed me up, number one. Also, um, what did Dixie number, ever do to them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, number two, um, <laughs> after a certain point, once they start walking towards the house, the house explodes. Um, and the reason why it explodes is explained later in the story, which they had to tie up a loose end, uh, long story short. But yeah. the reaction of the kids for this house exploding oh, yeah. is to run over at the two cops and essentially laugh at them. <laughs> and just be like, wow, that house just exploded. Wasn't that funny? Ha ha ha, you almost died. <laughs> um, so yeah. I don't know. It, it, and this is, a, this is also the scene, too, we were referencing earlier when... They're questioning Alfred, and the they ask like, "Could you identify him?" And they're like, "Let's go get get him get him a crayon and some papers or something." Like that's their attempt to get a sketch of a suspect. Is they're gonna get a tall white stick figure? Well, if it's a stick figure, wouldn't he be red or green or depending some, on the color? Guy? Yeah, the, I mean yeah. that's gonna change the entire course of yeah, the investigation. Really. Uh, speaking of which, uh, John, you mentioned something we haven't brought up uh, a pretty critical plot point of this movie. Which is young Gary Busey. Mm-hmm. That is correct. Nobody's brought him up. Yeah, how did you guys feel about uh, Gary Busey? Like, now knowing who he is and looking back at him, I know him to be this, like, incredibly unhinged, like, let me sniff cocaine out of your ass guy. Um, and so to kind of see him a little more reserved in this movie was kind of strange for yeah. me. How did you guys feel about that? Uh, well, I was confused because he seemed really normal. Yeah. That was... <laughs> I mean, I've seen Entourage. I've seen the Amazon Prime commercials. <laughs> Actually, you know Celebrity what? Apprentice. Peter, you talk. I'm going to bring up that commercial because we need to play it. Everything about Gary Busey is amazing. Um, he, so I didn't realize this. Apparently, this was the first appearance of skinny Gary Busey. Gary Busey used to be fat, which I did not know. He apparently lost 60 pounds prior to auditioning for this role. And, um, and this was, he was coming off of, not long before that, having been an Academy Award-nominated yeah, right. actor. And apparently, like, this was his first experience playing a villain, which was so strange to me because I think of him as nothing but a villain in, like, either movies or even when he was on Celebrity Apprentice. Like, he was the doddering guy who was ruining everything. Okay, I'm going to play Gary Busey's Amazon Fire commercial because it's outstanding. You, got, you ready, John? Yep. Hopefully you can hear it. If you're like me, you like talking to things. 
Hello, lamp. Hello, <laughs> pants. But it's frustrating when things don't listen. Find Gary Busey. Find Gary Busey! But this new Amazon Fire TV listens to me. Gary Busey. Yay! Amazon Fire TV! Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Glorious. Glorious. He did, he seems so like mentally off in that commercial, but in this movie he seems boring. I don't get it. Almost. Almost. There was the scene. So what did you make of the scene when they introduce both Joshua, Gary Busey, and the general? General but, Turtleneck. That general Turtleneck. Uh, yeah. Field, he might be Field oh, Marshal Turtleneck. Oh, you mean the, the, the scene with the lighter? Yeah. With, when the, the scene with the lighter. That didn't make me think that Gary Busey was a badass. He was just doing that sort of, I'm a psychopath, here's some flame yeah. under my arm thing. And the general was holding the guy in a really weird way. Like, he yeah. just asked to borrow the lighter. Hey, John, didn't Travis Bickle do the lighter thing in Taxi Driver? He did something similar, yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was just, like, a cultural thing in the 80s. Like, oh, man, he's crazy if he lights himself. <laughs> yeah, well, because uh, uh, Riggs never tries to... Like, he never does the moment where he does the lighter thing. Uh. Under under himself, he does uh, he does, and we might talk about this later. Try to like have an extended "I'm crying alone, about to shoot myself" scene. Oh, yeah. you know, let's talk about that now because I thought that scene held up really well. I actually kind of did too. Apparently, the reason uh, the reason Mel Gibson was in Franco Zeffirelli's Hamlet, he was cast for that movie entirely on the strength of this scene. Really? Zeffirelli saw this scene, which apparently, I'm not sure if this is true, but I saw this in trivia. Uh, <laughs> apparently, they used a real bullet in the chamber of that gun. So when that gun what? is in Mel Gibson's face, it is a loaded, cocked pistol. Wow. And not with a blank. Which, How different uh, of a world we could have lived, guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I, I can go either way. I feel like that could be urban legend out the ass, or... That can be true because I feel like just sometimes that stuff back then was unhinged and unregulated. And I don't, we don't know if Mel Gibson was as crazy then as he is now. Yeah. So. So Mel Gibson and Gary Busey have both definitely just gone a little bit more nuts in the twenty years. Yeah. Yeah. Danny Glover held up though. Yeah. Like at least through Angels of the Outfield. I'm not familiar with his work. <laughs> after. Uh, you know, he was in Saw. He. That's true. <laughs> he was in it. <laughs> that's all I've got. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, that scene was really good. I don't know. Yeah, that, that held up. That was like, his acting in that was really good. It was intense. And I kind of love the uh, the contradiction of the Looney Tunes Christmas on in the background. Yeah. That was pretty funny. Uh, so that was, yeah, that did hold up pretty well. Um, it was, I did kind of wonder why he was so, like, angry, though. And I know that his wife had died in a car accident and... I guess we find out in the second movie that the car accident was not just an accident. Which, I, I, I forgot about that, but it, I feel like that's like just shoehorned. That's so shoehorned So in. shoehorned. But I understand, you understand he's lost his wife, but there's clearly, like, something else going on if his reaction yeah. 11 months later is that he is constantly engaging in suicidal ideation. Yeah. And it just seemed like it wasn't enough to make him that angry and so as good as that scene was and as good generally as i think bell gibson was 
Um, and this was, you forget how good an actor he was mm-hmm. in his heyday. He'd just come off of uh, The Bounty with Anthony Hopkins. Right. Mad Max was not that long before that. Um, yeah. And, Gasoline. Yeah, exactly. And then he would go on to do Hamlet. Um, it just, it didn't seem like it was enough for the character to react that way. I don't know what you guys thought about, about, like, just his motivations in general. Uh, I've done stupid things in the name of women who didn't deserve it before. I've gotten unnecessarily depressed over girls before, so I can sort of see it, I guess. Uh, what about you, John? Um, no, I, I completely understand. Like, I also didn't quite buy it. Um, I, I do believe that um, a lot of the characterization in this movie, and again, like the first 30 minutes and the last three minutes of the movie are just like shoehorned elements in at the last second by the 26-year-old writer that was just like, oh shit, I need to have a story. Um, Who's got Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, screaming in the other room while he's writing this. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, uh, I'm looking at my notes here. One thing I've got written down, I feel like this is the weakest of insults you can yell at anybody. I think um, there's a moment in Die Hard, which uh, it's, the, it's the moment when um, John McClane is strapping the C4 to an office chair, and he's going to drop down the elevator shaft and blow up the bottom of the building. And he says, you know, suck, or I'll see you take this under advice, jerkweed. And I always just... <laughs> Jerky just falls so flat for me in that scene. Um, That's got '80s power. It, I feel like it's got to be an '80s '80s insult. power. Well, here's um, my transition is Danny Glover likes to yell "Go spit," which is what kind of insult is that? Go spit. This is this is what you had with uh, Taxi Driver, John. That is true. Insults that make no sense. Like I, I don't. For some reason, though, I'm really insulted knowing that like Danny Glover said that. I don't. I don't know why that is. Go spit. I, I can't. I can't feel like I am telling anybody off when I say that in the slightest. Yeah, he seems so nice and wholesome. Yeah, like like it yeah. feels like a dad trying to like yell at his kids. Yeah, like, except when he's exposing himself to his uh, kids and uh, and letting his daughter smoke weed, just not in the house. Or his daughter hit on his partner. Yeah. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Um. Her, by the way, his daughter's boyfriend gets murdered in this movie, and I feel like they just passed that by. They must have. I kind of missed that. Um, so right after he gets shot by, um, uh, Reese yeah. gets shot by Gary, Busey, by Gary Busey, and they get the call in the radio. He's like, uh, white Caucasian, or, yeah, uh, Caucasian male, seventeen years old, has uh, been has been killed. And he's like, get somebody else to handle oh, it. And they're like, it's right. three blocks from your house. It's in your neighborhood. Like that's a, a reason to have somebody. Right. Go and so, and he's like, "What did Lex are going to tell me? He has like blonde hair and dimples." Yeah. And the cops like, "How'd you know?" And that's how he knows that his family's in trouble. Mm-hmm. But that's never brought up again. That like a seventeen year old kid was was murdered with his daughter. And like, again. did anyone investigate this? I don't think they did. Uh, was, I'm not sure either. It was a you know twenty six year old scriptwriter. That's the. Uh, I've also uh, not to completely ignore what you said, but I've also yeah. got. I've got rain twice in my notes, and then the third time it says fucking rain, because that was really pissing me off for some reason. Uh, and that was in that scene, because I remember, mm-hmm. like, it was raining when they're talking to the prostitute, and then Mel Gibson gets shot. But yeah, they do they do brush over that kid. I mean, you don't even see him in the movie. You just... No. It was a parenthetical reference at best, yeah. and it, it sort of, it I guess, humanized the daughter a little bit, but you, you could just assume that you... Uh, Matt, you look like you're about to explode. <laughs> I, 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 in my head, I went from uh, that scene to when they confront Gary Busey in the house, 
How I I so we we agree that the first twenty minutes, half hour of this movie is weak and shaky, and then the middle to almost the end holds up pretty well, and then the last 10, 15 minutes are pretty uh, bad. And I think that the last 10, 15 minutes are bad, beginning when they crash the cop car into Murtaugh's house. Yeah. Like, that, that's the that's what we are talking about before. Like, the LAPD just doing shit that no cop would ever do, you know? And it's a nice house. I hope he has homeowner's yeah, insurance. Like, Seriously. Who is insured for, like, the person driving their work vehicle into their Christmas decorations? Like, Yeah, and you can't claim it's a necessity. Like, he didn't drive the car into his own house. There was two of them versus one. Unless they framed Gary Busey, which is more bad police work. And and this is going back to my other thing, where it's like, there was two against one, but then it's like, was the entire LAPD just completely booked? Could they have not had, like, (laughs) two other guys go in there with them? What the fuck? That's like that kind of, like, 80s, like, tension drama... And it was everybody cop comedy. Like, the back, the, the police just disappeared in the second half of the movie. It's like in so many Bond movies when it's just like, suddenly in the last third of the movie, there's no MI6, there's no good guys, it's just James on his own. And it's like, no, he, in real life, any normal person would call in the fucking army. Oh, I didn't like that. I'm sorry. I got off on a tangent. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, John, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling the heat from that. Yeah, uh, no, I'm I'm feeling it through my computer right now, and it's yeah. not because we've been on Skype for over an hour. It's yeah. coming from that guy. I'm sorry that that was that was excessive. That spiraled out of control a little bit. Uh, another scene that didn't work for me in the slightest was when Murtaugh's daughter is escaping from what was actually a decent scene, but there's like there's that standoff when they're trading off, they're trying to get the daughter back, and she gets into the car and starts driving away. And they dispatch after her a helicopter to take her down. It's a helicopter. Was this when she's in the limo? Yeah, she's in the limo driving away. Like, the helicopter, like, is sort of gently touching down on top of her to signal dominance. Yeah, to the desert, which uh, Riggs and Murtaugh bring no backup to. No backup, again! I know they have the advantage that, like, they don't know I'm dead. Yeah, but it's, it's cops, you know. Yeah, the the helicopter that scene was weird. The general's just wandering around, like happens to find Mel Gibson in the brush. Yeah, just I didn't standing think about there. That. Yeah, right. and he wasn't with anybody. He was just like, "Hey, Wearing I just a comical earpiece, by the way." Yeah, very again, very eighties. <laughs> I just happen to be wandering by with an assault weapon, and here's this guy. That, that is that eighties action movie convenience that we see so much, but. And I just saw that, I just watched Die Hard, and I know I'm going through, like, rose-tinted glasses, but mm-hmm. I feel like there was less of that uber convenience in Die Hard than there was in this, which came out, Die Hard was 89, this was 87, so maybe it learned from the mistakes, but that's, that stuff happened all the time. I don't know, what do you think, John? What do you think about the desert scene? Um, I, I, I think that, um, that would be a good experiment to, to watch Die Hard for this podcast, and then see how you feel about it after that. Oh, uh, that seems like a risk. Yeah. That seems like a really big risk. Um, but actually, you know, so I've just I've just watched, in the past week, I've watched Die Hard with a Vengeance, Die Hard, and Lethal Weapon. And both of the Die Hards hold up better than Lethal Weapon. But I'm not, and I'm not even going for script issues or stuff like that. Like, Die Hard just doesn't age as poorly from its cultural stuff. So, basically, the director of the movie, um, the director was Richard Donner, 
And he was originally a TV director. And I wonder if a little bit of the reason this movie doesn't hold up is because of the fact that it feels a bit like a three or four episode story arc mashed together and edited down for time. So like, mm-hmm. that's where that, so like, it feels like they cut out the character development of the, fil- of the villains and they cut out some of the plot exposition that makes everything tie in together a little bit more. And then oh, we, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry to cut you off, but yeah, no. I do agree in that. Um, a lot of the, um, story arcs in this do feel episodal. Like it, it doesn't really feel like it's throughout the entire movie. I, I do feel as though, um, a lot of, um, ideas and, and story uh, stories throughout the movie um, kind of carry over in snippets and not throughout the entire film. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, um, Riggs and Murtaugh's friendship is is given as much time as it needs. Um, mm-hmm. Riggs or Murtaugh's family, it's given as much time. As, I, I guess I just didn't really care for those scenes because I just didn't care in general. But they those scenes were good. They added to it. Um, but all the villain development stuff was weak. The detective work even wasn't weak. And then how did the, the suicide jumper, which was actually a good scene. And I remember like, I liked it more this time than when I first saw it, but did that, how did that fit in again? I don't remember. They just, I, I assume that that was somebody from the Die Hard Christmas Party that like had gotten out. <laughs> that was like how, yeah. that was how the universe is tied in together. Oh, well, there's a lot of every, like. There's like four-ish C-level actors from Die Hard that are in this movie. Are there really? I didn't notice that. The police psychologist was, in this movie, who declares Riggs suicidal. Another plot that I feel like kind of petered out with any explanation. She was uh, the news reporter. I I think the guy who who tortures Riggs was... In Die Hard is one of the henchmen. Oh yeah, one, Agent John, Agent Johnson, the younger one from Die Hard, was the guy who was briefing Danny Glover in the beginning of this movie during the partner scene. And I think I'm missing one other person. Also, Michael Kamen did the music for both of these movies. They're both set in L.A. at Christmas. The list goes on and on. It's late eighties, late eighties, and Christmas two years apart. It's a conspiracy, you guys. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, all right, well, um... Is there any way to talk about this movie without comparing it to Die Hard? I wonder. <sighs> that's my... That's my... It's baggage, a good question. Not yours. Not yours. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, John? I, I can't answer that. Honestly, I... I'm still sort of in favor of us seeing Die Hard and then kind of comparing the two. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if you can, honestly. I, uh, okay, I will... So, part of the reason I just watched Die Hard was because my girlfriend hadn't seen it, and as I said, we were in an argument about um, if it's a Christmas movie or not. I maintain it still is. She maintains it isn't. It merely takes place at Christmas time. She's wrong, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm in trouble. On the anyway. next episode. Yeah, on <laughs> the next episode when Matt is single again. On a very special episode. <laughs> um, where was I going with it? Oh, so I, I just watched it to show her... Um, and then she just happened to be around when I was watching it for this podcast, and she actually said she liked this one more, that there was more of a story, and watching them back-to-back, she's got a point. There's more of a story in this one, but there's also, these are two very different movies, you know? One is, like, an action movie in a pressure cooker, and this one is a buddy cop detective case. Um, so all the similarities we mentioned are 
there, but it's probably just more coincidental, if anything. Sure. Um, um, also, um, okay, so I don't know if you guys are close to, like, wrapping up point, but there is one question that I've been meaning to bring up that might actually wrap up this entire thing. I'm going off of the buddy cop idea. Go for it. Uh, sure. Uh, so I think we would all agree that this is one of the first films, instrumental films, in kind of laying out um, the guidelines for what you're looking for in a buddy cop film, right? Um, would you say that this is your favorite buddy cop film? And if not, what is your favorite? Well, wait. All right. Uh, let's answer these questions one at a time. What, your first one was... Was this instrumental in making a buddy cop film? Oh, no, no, no. It's just, is this your favorite buddy cop film? And if not, what is? Oh, okay. Uh, Do you have an immediate answer to that? Um, So, that to me, like, I I would love to say Die Hard with a Vengeance. They're not both Ah, cops, sadly. Yeah, you know, but that... That count. I will. I, I would count that as a buddy cop movie. Yeah, I just I, I I love the interaction there. I think that the chemistry between um, to me the chemistry between Danny Glover and Mel Gibson has got to be the best part of this movie. Yeah, I think that they worked really well together. Like they fit as, as partners. They were like that part was pretty believable. So it's definitely up there. But I think that like Die Hard with a Vengeance probably. Um, to the extent that it counts is is a little bit farther for me. Yeah, it's def- it, it's a buddy cop movie, and even even if it's uh, unorthodox, I still count it as that. Uh, and I just watched that today too. Um, I don't know. I don't really like the buddy cop genre too much. Uh, Ooh. It, I mean, I don't dislike it, but I I feel like, and I think I think I just don't care for it that much because. It is a genre that is already so ripe for cliche and stuff we've seen before. Like, I mean, we've seen the buddy cop genre spoofed so often that it's kind of hard for me to remember. I, I guess I guess it's been spoofed and ruined so much, and I feel the exact same way about Star Wars. But it's been made fun of so often that it's hard to remember why it was fun in the first place. Um, which is actually, for the record, how I feel about Star Wars. I have zero interest in the new movie but <clears throat> that's a that's a separate podcast that will lose all listeners later um that's fighting words but what i was thinking uh this is this is gonna be out there you guys might both judge me but i did i do have a very soft place in my heart for okay john you said this is one of the first movies where you saw nip right that's correct okay the movie i'm about to list is one of the first is this was my introduction to the world of side boob <laughs> Uh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> go on. We we all know what side boob is. It's where the camera is at that perfect angle and you see full shape, but you don't see any nip. Um, and this buddy cop movie was my first introduction to side boob. Uh, and I also feel like I'm going to get a hate for it. I'm kind of nervous to say it, but the uh, 2003 reboot remake of Starsky and Hutch, I actually love that movie. Um... As a buddy, I don't know. I, I, it's been a while since I watched Starsky and Hutch, which um, you know, side boob memories aside, uh, I did. <laughs> I did really enjoy that movie. I'm I'm sure that that Lethal Weapon is better, but I have a slightly better memory of Starsky and Hutch. I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I've been rambling for a little while, but yeah, it's not my favorite genre. You know. I thought about saying the Heat. 
for a second. So heat. don't feel uh-uh. no, not, heat, no, not the heat. heat. The heat. The heat. Oh, oh yeah. That works though. I mean, because <laughs> there wasn't was there a buddy in in Heat? I don't think so. Well, there was Sandra Bullock. She was FBI, and then McCarthy was local PD. Oh yeah, yeah. So that was a buddy cop movie. Yeah. Um, not a, not necessarily a great movie, but. <sighs> Yeah, well, modern comedies are all shot like sitcoms. Yeah, it feels like that's part of it. Like, this has been such a lampooned yeah. genre that it's hard to determine, like, which is sincere and which mm-hmm. is kind of making fun of it. Oh, I, sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 absolutely, which which kind of goes off my point as to why, to be honest, this is probably my favorite buddy cop movie. But if I can just give props to another buddy cop movie, go for it. Uh, which hopefully you guys will both appreciate, um, the... Um, magical pairing uh, of Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman from Double Team, I would have to say is my favorite quote-unquote buddy cop movie. I think you broke our guest. With, with, with lines such as, with lines such as, offense wins the glory, or defense wins the game. <laughs> John, I don't know if we can do this anymore, buddy. <laughs> That was a crossover, too. It was the 90s. It was both buddy cop and 90s basketball star turned actor. Yup. And it was glorious. Was it? Was it? You know, I'm thinking now, um, I'm staring at my my Blu-ray collection. I've got a bunch of the Marvel movies. And we all know that at this point, Marvel is not doing straight up superhero films anymore, but they're doing superheroes in genre films. So Captain America, Winter Soldier, was Captain America in the 1970s thriller. Uh, Thor, Dark World, was a poor attempt at an answer to a Game of Thrones episode. But I'm, I'm wondering what the first buddy cop Marvel superhero movie is going to be now. Mm. Yeah. Think about that one, listeners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all right, well... Um, you know, I looked up the uh, trivia and stuff on this movie and stories about production, but there wasn't really too much interesting. Um, I did find that they had three different fight instructors for Mel Gibson. One guy taught him jailhouse rock combat, which I assume is what it sounds like. One guy worked on jiu-jitsu, and the third guy, and any Bob's Burgers fans will appreciate this, the third guy taught capoeira. Oh. Um, which I didn't even think existed back then, so I guess that proves goes to show. Um, that's that Brazilian, like, dance fighting, That's right? the Brazilian dance fighting, and if you have Netflix, there's an episode of Bob's Burgers where Tina learns capoeira, and it's outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> she learns it from a guy who has a ponytail, which he uses at one point as a weapon. Oh, um, so slick. Yeah, so <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the movie came out eighty-seven, made for fifteen million, uh, grossed a hundred twenty million. I don't know if that's adjusted for inflation, um, but obviously enough to warrant a sequel, three sequels, and rumors of a. I wasn't sure if they were doing a fifth sequel, Lethal Weapon Five, or if they were doing a reboot. Uh, I feel like it could go either way. This feels like a movie that's going to get remade before too long. Oh yeah, right, John. Uh, yeah. Uh, Apparently they, um, apparently they already like talked to Justin Lin and Chris Hemsworth. Oh, to I, I like did, be I, the lead role. I read about Chris Hemsworth, but I didn't hear uh, Justin Lin directing. I'm assuming. Uh, I'm not entire. I guess well, um, Justin Lin directed uh, the most recent Fast and Furious films, which are outstanding films. <laughs> uh, you, you and I have, and I'm glad Grant's not here. You and I have. <laughs> 
wildly differing opinions on the Fast so franchise. So you think that Tokyo Drift is the best? That's that's what the difference is, right? Uh, well, I, I do best... like the soundtrack. Yeah, I did enjoy the soundtrack. Yeah. You shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you were done speaking. Um, yeah, oh, okay. I, I'm just looking at my notes randomly, but um, towards the end of the movie, Murtaugh, who is like out of breath chasing the bad guys, which makes me wonder why he hasn't retired already, but... Uh, this is a pretty poorly delivered line because time for you to die. And it's just like, ugh! That's like what a 12-year-old would think is a really badass thing to say at that moment. Not not an adult cop who would, I just assume would just run after them. I could picture my 12-year-old self being like, <laughs> yeah, it is time for yeah. you to die. More <laughs> lucky charms, Mom! Oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've gone through all of my... Oh, okay. So, Lethal Weapon 5. Um, for listeners who watch Always Sunny, two, I, I think three or four of the characters in that show have an unhealthy obsession with Lethal Weapon, and at one point, and they're all white, I should mention, but at one point, <laughs> at one point, an episode is dedicated to watching their, in their filmed attempt of the fifth Lethal Weapon movie, uh, where one of the white characters does... <laughs> One of the white guys plays Murtaugh in some <laughs> some really legendary blackface. Oh <laughs> no! And, and and there's a whole like argument in the episode about the use of blackface. They're talking about Darth Vader, a black guy voicing a white character, um, being done by James Earl Jones. And they're talking about old jo- Al Jolson and jazz singer. <laughs> but that's not even the worst part of it. Halfway through their rendition of Lethal Weapon 5, they switch parts. They switch actors. Ooh. And the guy who was playing Riggs is now playing Murtaugh and vice versa. But the guy who was playing the the guy who was playing the white character and is now playing the black character, when they switch, he does not put on any blackface. He plays the part. <laughs> the photo-negative so, version. Yeah. So he's playing Murtaugh with the mustache and the grizzled accent and everything, but he's playing it, like, as a white man. It's, I don't know what episode of Always Sunny it was. It was legendary, it was hilarious, and it was dark in the way that only that show can be. You absolutely need to look it up. And and Frank Reynolds, played by Dan DeVito, is, like, a corrupt Indian chief who plans to tape up... <laughs> Just, I don't want to run any more of it. Um... Final thoughts, John. Do you have anything else you want to add? <laughs> um, after that. Yeah, I'm just... sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no worries. Um, yeah, I, I think I have got uh, one kind of overall view of this of this film, um, which is that yes, there are a lot of um, there are elements that keep it grounded within the '80s, but I think it's such a fun film, and there are so many awesome one-liners that um, it does withstand the test of time. And that I think that this movie is watchable simply due to its entertainment value. Um, and it kind of trumps every other aspect of the film. That's that's what I would go. Uh, so, all right, Peter, what were your thoughts, final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think that despite seeing the movie for the first time, so far after the, like, not only the filmmaking techniques, but, like, the cultural space of its intended audience, they just seem to be having so much fun. Everyone who's making this movie seems to be have, have so much fun being in the movie. It's a little bit infectious. Like, they're really into this, and they're really just getting into the character. And so that ultimately, like, that 
and the interaction between the the two leads it, it it definitely kept it it kept it going for me like this was not remotely a chore to see this movie even even with the the kind of plot issues and even with the first 30 minutes yeah i i think i agree with both of you guys i think um one thing i did want to bring up i forgot to mention this before but um the music doesn't hold up for me though it is so 80s there's just sax or just weird reverb electric guitar which you know there's a reason that's not in movies anymore there is just but then the michael Kamen stuff which was similar to die hard in its own way but um that did hold up pretty well but the music didn't do it for me and i think that's a reason i actively disliked it when i saw it as a you know 14 year old or whatever um but yeah i went into this expecting to dislike it and to make fun of it a lot more than i did and it does hold up, despite of the things that shouldn't work still. I think the plot is weak. I think that they are just grossly... They, they want to have their cake and eat it, too, with um, two things. With, like, the mental illness. Like, there's so many suicide stuff that they... <clears throat> they get a little, you know, if with. but And then smoking. There's lots of times where it's like, well, everyone's going to smoke nonstop, but we're going to still mention how smoking is unhealthy. So there, there's a lot of, and which I really feel like all that only happened at that moment in history. That was when they started to take both of those things seriously, but it was still so casual to make fun of it and to do it. Um, but yeah, I went into this thinking I was going to not like it, liked it more than I did. It, it's not one I need to see again. Um, but, you know, I'll see it. I mean, I'll watch it if it's on, or if anyone else wanted to watch it, I wouldn't, like, say, no, we can't do it. Uh I, don't, I, don't, I just, I don't care enough, but it's better than I remembered it. It's better than I initially gave it credit for. So I would say, yeah, you should definitely check it out at some point if you get the chance. Uh, all right. Well, John, any, anything else you want to bring up? No, I think that's got it, man. All right, cool. Um, so, John, before we wrap up, how about that, uh, that Bud Light Platinum? How are you feeling on that? <laughs> um, you know, I got to say that it accomplished its task, which is to, you know, get us to where we need to be. <laughs> <laughs> So you should be shit-faced right now, right? Um, you know, only after two beers, yes. I can I can faithfully say yes. Um, okay, well, so, that's, yeah, I don't want to bring that up anymore. Uh, Peter, what about you in the St. Arnold's Christmas Ale? What do you think? Oh, I thought it was, I thought it was very good. It, it's, it's not the destination, it's the journey. <laughs> and this beer took me on a, a journey through a winter wonderland. 7.8 <laughs> journey, yeah. That uh, also doesn't hurt. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... I, I think I like it. I just I just don't like Christmas beers. I don't like winter ales, but this one is definitely a little bit different. This actually had a bit had a little bit more flavor going on than a lot of other winter ales, which I just feel like are always just like dirt dirty, just something like just ugh, plain and crappy about them. So I like this. Um, and I actually should point out that it was my lovely girlfriend who did get me this beer for our show. So. We want to spend a, spend, ah, send a special shout out to uh, our lovely listener Sandy for helping us out on that. Hey. Uh, yay! Um, but yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up. This will be. John, are we going to talk about movies at the end of the year? Do we still want to do that? Or Wait, sorry, say that again? Do, you, do we still want to do movies at the end of the year? Or, or do we want to have a bonus episode or no? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, then this isn't our last episode of 2014, but uh, we do, this is our Christmas episode, so thank you for being on, Peter. Um, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Good Happy Kwanzaa. Holidays. Happy Hanukkah <laughs> for all you heathens out there. Have a non-denominational <laughs> winter greeting from us at the Rue Brewers. Um, 
And yeah, we as I said earlier, you can find us on iTunes. We are now the only Beer Brewers link that shows up. We are on SoundCloud. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter at we are on Twitter at Beer Brewers Pod. You can find me at the Matt Gone. You can find John at Johnny on the Spot. Right, John? That's correct. Um, spelled J H A A N Y on the Spot. Uh, and Peter, for those of you who are not lucky enough to be your Facebook friends, do you have Twitter? I do not have the Twitter. Ah! Oh, wow, you're, you're Jason a... Manzoukas. Yeah, come on. We have... You'd need a Twitter of all things. Uh, right? I feel like probably 140 characters is about the limit of what most people can tolerate. Uh, so... I like it, though. It frequently makes me just cringe and laugh. It's some weird combination of both. Um, but you have trivia nights in D.C. Do you want to promote that at all? Uh, I do. Sure, why not? Why not? Promote something. Why not? Um, so there is this bar called The Pinch uh, in Columbia Heights on 14th Street. It is uh, kind of like what would happen if like, some of your creepy uncles opened a bar, um, which I love. And we do trivia nights there every Wednesday at 8 p.m., and it is mediocre. So everyone should come, and we can. That should be a 2015 resolution for our, for our listeners since you come to your trivia. I think so. Thursdays are hard for me. The struggle's real. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alright, well, I think it's going to be it, but uh, seriously, all your listeners, have a happy holidays, have safe travels, and um, if you want to gift us with something special to Brewers, you could like us on Facebook, and you could tell your friends to like us on Facebook, or subscribe, or just in general, get the word out there. That would be an awesome gift for you, and, uh, or from you, and for, for you, from us, we would need to do great podcasts. So, once again, Peter, thank you, John, thank you, uh, and to our listeners, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We take an aim at major labels for practice. We're radioactive without the radio play. And before I die, I'ma get my final tour, holding the hammer of Thor, standing the shoulders of devil dinosaur. We take the stage, write rhymes to fill a page, cause the music we made is bringing in the silver age. This is beyond the golden age of rapping comic books. Rock for people sick of the direction that the genre took. And Adam Warbrock is rocking the mic. And Trump one got it locked in my binocular sight. Damn right. For all the people saying back in the day, the silver age is here to bring back what Santa Jack made. Get up.